This is Jimmy Corain, and we have got a great episode of Improv Nerd for you today. Our guest today is Bill Cott. He can do everything. Long form, short form, musical improv, sketch, magic, parts in TV and film. This guy is not only brilliant, he's hilarious. And he is an incredible improv teacher that creates a supportive and accepting environment in his own school, The Improv Trick. We talked to him about why he puts such an importance on space and object work, how short form can help you with your long form, and how at 25 he got his big break being cast on the Dana Carvey Show, which was a network television show, and he speaks honestly about the pluses and the minuses about getting your big break at such a young age. As I'm recording this, I'm a little freaked out. Uh, Betsy has gotten, uh, my daughter, who's 15 months old, has gotten three spider bites. Uh, each night she seen, she got one on her stomach one night, the next night another one, and now she got one on her lip. And Lauren has taken her over to uh, the drugstore, Walgreens, to get some Benadryl. So hopefully that will all clear up. But w- when the medical stuff happens, I, I get really... Um, I get kind of I get I get scared basically is what it is and then I'm like oh should we take her or not because I came from a family where like we we never went to the doctor and so I don't want to pass that on to my daughter Lauren thank God is more like oh let's take her to the doctor I'm like really it's a fifty dollar copay maybe we should wait till the morning so I'm pretty I'm pretty screwed up but it it it, it is it is upsetting and I worry about it so enough about me uh, Betsy I'm sure we'll be fine we've got to go in there and we've got to find these spiders I think. I think they may be under her crib or under one of her chairs, but that 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 gets me kind of like it gets it just gets it makes me angry. Anger when I say anger, a lot of times it's it's what I'm really trying to say to you people is I'm afraid. So enough about me. You're gonna love this episode. Bill gives you so much, and he's so passionate about improv. He is such a great teacher, and he's really just so funny. He is just. He's so talented, this guy. I mean, he just is so, and he he cares so much about improv, and I love what he talked about, space and object work, and why it's so important. So here it is. Enjoy the Bill Cott episode. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. All right, let's do this, Bill Cott. Thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. Thanks for having me. Now, you grew up in St. Louis, though you bounced around to other places like Houston, Detroit, and uh, Pennsylvania. And your mm-hmm. dad wrote for corporate industrial and speeches for C- CEOs, and he did live full-budget musicals. And I think he also used Second City. Um, how did that uh, exposure help you in your comedy career? Well, uh, because of his love for comedy, he let us stay up for SCTV, Saturday Night Live, and Fernwood Tonight, which was another great one. That's how I got to know uh, Fred Willard from something other than real people. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was a bizarre show back in the 70s. Um, and, uh, and he was really, really, uh, he would always like quiz me on things like, why didn't that joke work? And things like that. He, was re- he would really analyze jokes. And so um, it kind of got me thinking in a comedy mindset. And I always, 
I knew that all these people that I enjoyed watching came from an improv tradition. And that's, you know, he told me all about Second City and uh, and how it was formed and things like that. So uh, he was it was he was very, very influential in in me being involved in improv. Do you think he wanted to be a performer? He did. As a matter of fact, he performed in uh, in musicals. He was uh, studying to be a Roman Catholic priest um, in St. Louis. And uh, when he would perform in these plays, he'd get this positive response. So he auditioned to be in the uh, Muni Opera Chorus. And in St. Louis, the Muni Opera is this outdoor amphitheater and all the big touring productions that come through go up at the Muni, uh, which was built for the, the, the uh, World Fair in uh, uh, 1907, I think it was. And so he auditioned to be in the chorus and he was accepted and he had to turn it down because they said it was unbecoming of a seminarian. And so, uh, so he kept on studying at the seminary and then uh, met my mother and then decided uh, that he was going to go that path instead of going into the priesthood, at least for then. Now, one of your first loves in performing was doing magic. And, and I believe you were exposed at a really young age, like five or six yeah. And you also had a grandfather who was into magic who taught you as well. How does improv and magic, where, where do they come together? Uh, well, that's I, I get that question a lot because people ask me why I call my improv school uh, the improv trick. And it's because at first I was going to teach both magic and improv. Because for me, uh, the, the thing that ties the two of them together, and I still may teach magic. I just haven't had the time to come up with a magic curriculum. Improv came a little bit easier to me. But the, the thing about magic and improv is when you're doing a, a magic trick for somebody, you have to concentrate on the other person. You have to make it all about your subject. You have to make it appear as though this is happening for the very first time. It's special. It's exciting. It's never happened before, which is kind of what you want to do in an improv scene. You want to completely focus on your scene partner. You want, and you've done a million scenes in a coffee shop, but you want to ask yourself, how can I make this really new and exciting in the first time that I've ever been in a coffee shop? Um, you said the first time you did improv in a troupe, mm -hmm. you were was, uh, after high school or before, in, in college or something, and you hated it. Yes. And did you rethink your life path? Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. What happened? Yeah. Well, um, from, a, from an early age, I wanted to go to Chicago, wanted to study at Second City. My dad told me, uh, well, if that's what you want to do, I'm not going to stop you, but I think you should get a college education first because those are very smart people and you're going to have uh, to deal with a higher reference level. And, and so uh, it was the main reason I went to college, the main reason I got a degree in communications with a theater emphasis was because I thought it would make me better at improv. So everything I was doing in my life up to that point was geared towards doing improv. And so my, some friends of mine uh, uh, started a troupe in St. Louis called The Network. Many of them had studied in Chicago. Um, a lot of people from The Network have gone on and do st done stuff on a national level. Uh, Tom Johnson was one of the founders of The, of the Network. He went on to do, uh, he was one of the first writers on The Daily Show and wrote there for probably the longest that any writer's written on The Daily Show. Brandon Johnson, no relation, started off at The Network in St. Louis. And uh, so uh, my friend Ray Brewer, who had studied in Chicago and come back to St. Louis, said, you got to start working with us. So he pulled me into that project and um, 
I my first rehearsal with those guys, I was so looking forward to it, and I really didn't have any training. They were they were trying to provide the training. They figured, oh, he's got the stage presence. We'll get the we'll get the improv. And I was trying too hard to be funny. I wasn't trying to listen to my scene partner. I wasn't trying to, pardon me, to serve the scene. And and so I I felt like I just fell down flat on my face. I hated it. And I almost didn't come back and do it again, which would have uh, precluded my trip to Chicago and, and all the work that I did back there in St. Louis with the network. So you do move to Chicago in the 90s, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're doing shows at comedy sports and you're taking classes at Second City. Mm-hmm. Back then, short form was a bit of a stigma if you did short form. Can yeah, you- I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I wasn't. It wasn't until... I was hired on at Second City and I, you know, I got to know so many people that I owe. A lot of my friends from, from Second City that I was doing stuff with, uh, you know, Rich Talarico, Stu Harris, uh, you know, uh, Jay Suko, all those guys um, uh, were, were doing, you know, IO. They were studying long form and uh, none of them bothered to say anything about how, how short form was viewed. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm doing professional improv. I'm doing corporate events. I'm getting paid. Uh, and, and, you know, to me, it seemed like, like, and I don't think this anymore, but to me, it seemed a lot like IO was pay to play. And so, uh, where, whereas, um, second city was, you know, you, you have to be political and I don't mean in, in, in your humor. I mean, in how you treat other people, you had to work at it hard. You had to get to know people. And that was his own other hurdle. But to me, comedy sports was a great way to get a lot of stage experience, to work on character work, genres, musical improv. And musical improv has probably been the thing that I, I took away from me the most through doing comedy sports. The other thing that I find interesting about comedy sports um, is that you're actually performing in for a mainstream audience versus an improv audience. Can you tell me the difference, how that made, made you a better performer, performing for a mainstream audience? Well, yeah. Well, for one thing, um, it's not about the clever improv moves you're making. It's how you're connecting with somebody. So whereas somebody might be like, dude, sweet edit. Uh, an improv audience is like, oh, my God, I, I don't know how you think that fast. I don't know how you how you're able to jump into a character like that. I can't believe you can sing songs uh, just based on an audience suggestion. And so uh, and they're a little bit more appreciative. Um, kind of like, you know, um, I, I, I perform, you know, we were talking about magic earlier. I perform magic at the Magic Castle. And things that would wow the average audience uh, don't tend to wow there because the, the Magic Castle is all members. Uh, the, to go there, you have to either be a magician or a guest of a magician. So everybody there is well-versed in magic. And they're looking for the new twist you're putting uh, on something old or uh, the technique you're using. That, and then they're like, oh, I know how long that took to get that down. Uh, and, and so I, I think the, the, the difference between performing uh, magic uh, at a show or an event and the Magic Castle is, is the same difference as performing um, uh, improv at, say, at, at I.O. or UCB or one of the other places I perform out here and, say, comedy sports where it's like it's a group of teenagers who just came in from nowhere or five senior citizens who are looking for something fun to do in the neighborhood and they discovered it. What do you tell the the long form snobs who say, what can I learn? uh, How can I apply short form to long form? Um, For one thing, there's so many short form games that involve editing. You can get better at editing. 
Um, there's uh, a, a chance to to jump into more emotions and character work. Um, I don't think it's superior. I don't think I never thought one was superior over the other. Um, but I but I do think you can you can work on specific specific skills in front of an audience that you may only get a chance to do in a workshop or a class when you're doing long form. Um, so uh, also when you were in Chicago, I would say that you and Jay Suko were probably pioneers of doing a two-person improv. Uh, it was you and Jay. Mm-hmm. I don't remember anybody doing it prior to that. Um, how did you guys come up with that idea? Because most of the, most of the people, you were doing it in teams, eight or ten people. Yeah. Uh, we got the idea because Jay and I specifically love performing with one another. We would be, people would tell us uh, if we were at parties and stuff like that, we would never drop out of a bit. We would stay in character. We would be the same character for half hour, two hours at a time. Jay had even talked about renting a a cabin in the woods somewhere, whether it's the two of us or other people, people who would just commit to the bit and stay in it for that long. And so uh, people would say, like, get a room. Shut up, you guys. Can we have a real conversation? And... Uh, I'm not the sort of person that outside of interacting with Jay that hops into bits that often. So we had something a little bit special there. And uh, like anybody else I, I, I work with, I really don't tend to hop into bits off stage. But there was something that pulled us in there partially because we would push each other into a danger zone. You know, whether it be our own personal uncomfortableness or things that other people weren't going to talk about or try to try to find humor in. And one of our shows uh, hit pretty close to the bone. My parents came into Chicago and uh, they, they saw me at Comedy Sports. And at, at that time, it was, it was uh, right before I got hired up at Second City. Um, I was doing Comedy Sports and then rushing to the other end of the town to do Motherless Stage, which was our two-man show. Um, and so my parents came in to see Comedy Sports and then we held the show because they were trying to find parking. Uh, uh, over there uh, at the, uh, I think it was the Body Politic that we did that show at, and they they couldn't find parking, so they were like, "Well, we've already seen him in a show tonight. Let's go home." And I don't think they realized how different those two shows were, and so that show became about we we held it, you know, for could have, could have been almost twenty minutes. Uh, like the audience was painfully aware that we were starting late. And, uh, so we made the show about the fact that my parents weren't there. And so I had a conversation with Jay as my father about, uh, about, you know, improv and what I do and, um, you know, moving to Chicago and, you know, the, the choice that I made to, to create my own show and, and the difference between, you know, what comedy sports was and what that show was. Um, and it was pretty tearful. I made a lot of people cry, which was the first time I had done that with improv. And how how how, how did you feel about that? Because you know, coming from an improv background, you ne- you you always wanted to make people laugh and making mm-hmm. people- especially my father. Yes, yes. Um, how did you feel when you did that? Uh, it felt good because. Um, I, I knew that a large part of what we do isn't just about being funny. And while what, a lot of what Jay and I did wasn't necessarily uh, geared for laughs, it was, it was for the most part a, a funny show. Sometimes it was really darkly funny. We, the first show that we did was about 
about um, the like the it was the day the OJ chase happened. I had been watching it all day. Jay had been working and just got off, and we did a, a two man bit about OJ. So we did some really dark stuff in that show, but we had never done anything quite that dramatic and anything that that hit quite as uh, at home with me. So I was pretty proud of it. Uh, I didn't realize how good it was for me at the time because I was still pissed at my parents because uh, my dad wasn't about to valet park his car. I'm not going to trust anybody with my keys. So, uh, <laughs> and then, um, you, at 23, you get hired, uh, at second city in the national touring company mm-hmm. and you are thrown in with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. What yeah. do you, what do you remember touring with them? Um, what do I remember in terms of what scenes do we do or what do I remember scenes from the experience just, with just experience with, with, uh, Tina and Amy? Um, well, the, the the whole company was great. When I came in there at first, it was um, I was really intimidated by uh, Ali Farinakian, whom I had seen with the family a bunch of times, and Kevin Dorf, whom I had seen uh, at Second City. And I had never I never got a chance to see uh, Jazz Freddie, and that always kills me because uh, all my friends were seeing it. But um, so uh, they were kind of like uh, the new kids. I had already been in the company, so I was always trying to be supportive. I remember one time uh, after one of our early rehearsals, uh, Amy called me just to tell me how much she appreciated me being supportive. And I was kind of like, is that what we come here to do? But um, I guess at that point, I didn't realize, um, even though everybody here was this this open-minded community and supportive and hopefully not sexist, that they were running up against a lot of, um, a lot of uh, maybe like uh, not so overt sexism and some resistance to some of their new ideas. Because one of their most amazing things that I ever saw them do was they did a piece called I Want to Be an Action Hero, where it was more of a performance uh, performance art piece, a poem, where the two of them were out there uh, doing a poem. And it was just about how they imagined if they were an action hero, what it would be like. And that was a pretty strong feminist statement as it was, because there weren't many uh, female action heroes. So a lot of it was geared towards what, the almost having to be like a man, smelling like leather, and uh, uh, um, I can't remember what I can't remember. Man, it was it was it was a brilliant piece. But um, so I think I think uh, part of it was was trying to be as supportive as I could, uh, and maybe I wasn't as supportive as I could. I I, I remember one time uh, there was something that that Tina had written uh, for a, a corporate gig that we had done, and I didn't realize that she had written it. And I was kind of uh, uh, talking down on the piece and really upset her. Um, and I, I didn't realize how much I had upset her and, you know, apologized to her for that. Um, and, and put in the context of what they must have been, you know, going through at the time, I, I feel even worse about it now. I thought it was just me being a jerk, but it was kind of me participating in that institutional sexism that was prevalent, you know, and probably still is to a large degree. So two years later, you get a huge break. Uh, you're 25 years old, so you've been touring for a couple years. And you get a cast as a member. It was a primetime sketch show called The Dana Carvey Show. Mm-hmm. Now, originally you had auditioned for Robert Smigel for Saturday Night Live. Is that how you got the job? Yeah. What happened was I auditioned for Saturday Night Live. And when I went in there, it was the most ill-prepared I've ever been for any sketch audition in my life, which is why when I when I auditioned again recently just to put myself on tape, I was meticulous about it. But at this point, I was just throwing things up there on the screen. Oh, play around with this. And 
Um, so uh, one thing that I had been doing a lot in the sets at Second City was this bit called Jackie Gleason taking a difficult crap. And uh, it killed. We would just be lights up. Ali would say, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Jackie Gleason taking a difficult shit. And then lights up on me, and I would do this impression. It's not going to play at all on a podcast because it's all visual and the faces that I make, but it's just this grunting and all that. And it would kill. So I figured, okay, for an impression, and by the way, at that point, I didn't realize how important it was to have a topical impression. So I'm doing this impression that, you know, uh, a lot of people my age weren't even familiar with at that time. And so I was doing uh, the Jackie Gleason. and, And so I went into that audition being told, not to expect any laughter. And I opened up with my Rush Limbaugh impression and I was getting laughter. And I was like, oh, wow, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. And so I got to the Jackie Gleason part, stone silence, and I lost my confidence. And I felt bad about that forever. I beat myself up for doing that impression in that audition because I think it's what killed my chances, honestly. And so years later, I'm sitting in a lobby in New York I had been flown out there. There were people that I love uh, auditioning as well, like Susan Messing and Scott Robinson and um, who else was it at the time? I think Jim Zulovic and some other people. Uh, I, I, I think Steve, Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert uh, auditioned in a different group at a different time, but we were all sitting there at that bench anyhow, and Robert Smigel walks by. And I'm the guy that always feels uncomfortable when I'm sitting in an audition room and the casting director walks by or somebody and talks to me. But even more so because I looked up to Smigel and I knew everybody there looked up to him as well. And he said, hey, Bill, can you do me a favor? And I'm like, sure, what, what, what is it? Can you please do your Jackie Gleason taking a difficult crap? And I said, I don't know about that. I think that's what ruined my SNL audition. And he said, I know. And he started laughing because <laughs> he loves tragedy and comedy combined and said, uh, I, what I loved about it so much, I was watching it at the time. And I loved how funny it was to me, and I also loved how much I knew Lauren was hating it. So, uh, and he said, I, and, and I, I, I'm going to tell Dana about that, and I think at that point he might have even told him about it. And he said, he's going to love it for that same reason. So will you please, please do it? I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And so uh, I went in there, they loved it, and um, uh, I think it helped my chances at, at getting the Dana Carvey show. Did Smigel say at the audition uh, that you're going to be a big star? Um, you know what? Actually, Louis C.K. said that at one point uh, to me. I don't know if, if Smigel said that to me. He, he said a lot of very complimentary things to me. I remember Louis C.K. saying that to me when we were out. Uh, we went to the Four Seasons uh, the night before the audition, I think it was. And um, it was a weird situation there where where Smigel said, I, I, I dare you to, to go over to John Lovitz and say, I, I, love, I love the liar, Mr. Lovitz, but then again, all America loves the liar. So I got up from my point in the table, walked over there and said that to him. And I figured this was an inside joke. Like everybody says they love the liar, so everybody's going to laugh when I say this. And, and he looks at me like I'm from Mars. The whole table goes silent, and Smigel's laughing his ass off. Uh, and and what, he had, what he had said to convince me to do it, I said, he said, hey, I'll, I'll give you $1,000 if you go over there and say this. And I said, you don't need to give me $1,000. Just hire me for the show. And he goes, well, that may happen. And so I was like, okay, maybe this will cement it. But uh, uh, and, I, and I had afraid, I was afraid that I had offended John Lovitz. But I, I, I don't think it's that hard to offend John Lovitz. But then again, it's probably not that easy. Um, 
So you get cast in the Dana Carvey show, and it's just an amazing cast. Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert are, are in the cast with you. Smigel's a writer. Louis C.K. is a writer. Charlie Kaufman is a writer. And you are probably one of the youngest at 25 to be hired on this show. Mm -hmm. How do you get over being intimidated by this group? Um, I still don't think I, I ever I ever have. That's a big thing I have when I'm working uh, with other people who are who are established or that I've always looked up to. I always feel this hesitance, and I always feel this nervousness before uh, uh, working with them. And then and then you know when something clicks, like Stephen Colbert was my very first improv teacher, so he's on this pedestal to me, and then. For the show, we have to be in a bathtub, uh, uh, basically. I don't think this bit ever aired. Maybe it's on the special features. But uh, with me as Boris Yeltsin and him as Willie Nelson uh, singing a song together, singing a duet in a bathtub. And uh, just, you know, being in that intimate situation, I was very nervous being in tight quarters, sharing a bathtub with, you know, my big improv idol, and, you know, my, you know, what I consider my mentor. And uh, I think that helped me get over it partially. But I still was, you know, I was looking up to all these guys so much so that I, I think I didn't write as much because I didn't think anything that I wrote would be worthy enough to be on the show. And I wrote some stuff and pitched it and never got on the show. There was one piece that I wrote um, that I thought was rather silly um, that was just a bunch of really, really bad double entendres. Um, and that was the joke is that they were all bad double entendres and that was right up Louis CK's alley. So he kind of like, he really, Oh, Hey, let's sit down and let's write this. And so, uh, he actually uh, helped me punch it up and, and wrote it. And by that point the show was already canceled. So it never even made it in front of a camera, much less on the air. But what, what else did you learn from that experience? Um, uh, I, I learned that people don't go to work at 8am and leave at 5pm in this industry. Cause I was showing up my very first day on the, sh on the show. I was like, people are probably going to get there at nine. I'm going to get there at eight. And, uh, and then what I didn't know is when I was leaving for the day, cause nobody said you have to leave, you have to stay. I would leave at about 5 PM, go home, uh, you know, uh, watch some TV or go out to a movie experience New York. I was like, Hey, I'm in New York. And I didn't realize everybody else there was sticking around and writing all night. I had no idea. And, and, and I didn't know that we had as much room to write as we did. And I, and I, I, I also realized I probably could have uh, been as political as I was at Second City at the Dana Carvey show. I could have got to know more people uh, much deeper. But I figure once you're at this point, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have to kiss up to anybody. But I think that's, you know, sadly enough, that's something you always need to do. Even if even if the people that you're talking to don't consider it kissing up, and even if it's not in the kissy uppy way, you need to get to know these people so they know what you're capable of. Here's something that I learned. There was one time uh, before a table read that uh, that Louis and 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 Robert took me aside and said, "Hey, Bill, can you do a whatever sort of accent it was? I can't remember what it was." Uh, and I said, "Yes, I can. I could." And I, I, I basically I I almost started crying. And I started, I, I could do this sort of accent. I could do that. I could, you know, do stuff in the 30s and 40s. I could do, you know, uh, you know, high-pitched characters, low-pitched characters. And they were, like, kind of taken aback. They thought it was about a completely different issue. Uh, but I was just trying to tell them, there's stuff on this show that I could have done all along, 
but because you've only seen me do something, you don't know I'm capable of it. So I think if I would have gotten to know those guys better and they would have seen what I was capable of, they would have put me in more things because they loved it and they put me in the stuff that they put me in, but they didn't know what I could do, even though they had hired me to do that. When you look back, what was the thing that prevented you from getting to know those guys, from schmoozing a little, from playing the game a little? It was that nervousness I talked to you uh, about before because I had I had loved Robert Smigel. To me, he was like for for our generation, he was kind of like the uh, even though it was in uh, under Lauren Michaels' helm, he was like the Lauren Michaels of our time. He kind of like set up all these ideas, and and he was like the Lauren Michaels of that show. And and Louis C.K., whom I had seen do stand up so many times on David Letterman and things like that, I was like, this guy's amazing. Why doesn't the whole world know about him? And by now they do. Um, so I was intimidated. It was like, it was like as if they were friends of my big brother who, who, you know, I don't have a big brother, but if I did, and maybe that's an issue too, but, uh, <laughs> that I thought of them as these big brothers, but with even more status that a big brother would have, I didn't feel as they were, they were there to protect me. They were there to, to do a job. And I was there to try to prove myself to him. I didn't know what I needed to prove to him. I get it. Like for me, when I, when I'm intimidated or someone has authority or has power, I just avoid them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was part of it. Um, what? So you get this big break at 25. What's the advantages of getting a big break at a young age? And what's the disadvantage of getting a big break at a young age? Wow, that's tough. Um, well, let me first talk to the advantages. For one okay. thing, uh, you find out who, you know, uh, who cared about you in Chicago. Uh, because, you know, so, so many people just came up to me and said like, I knew this was going to happen for you all along. And I was like, Oh, awesome. I, I didn't know you cared about me or, or, you know, whatever. Um, there was, uh, people, um, who, um, I guess, uh, had, had supported me from afar for so long that I wasn't aware of. So that was an advantage, um, getting into the paper you know, being listed, uh, they, they didn't list the whole cast at the same time. So, uh, I guess, uh, Steve Carell and I both got mentioned at the same time in the, either the Sun Times or the Tribune. I've got a clipping somewhere from it. So that was an advantage getting to go to, to New York, uh, and not have to, you know, be a waiter or come out there and live in a, in an apartment with five other people in New York at that time. Uh, was definitely an advantage. The pay for, I was able to coast without having to work a day job in New York for a long time, even after the show was canceled, was an advantage. Um, I got into, I got into auditions that there, that I had no right even auditioning for at the time as a result of that show after it was over. Some of the disadvantages, um, one of them was, I, I, I think it was almost too soon in, in my development as a scammer and a writer. Um, I think I didn't have enough time to grow at that point to do what I needed to do. So I think it might've been a little bit early for me. Um, so I, I think I, I skipped over some, some phases of my development, at least at that time. I think I caught up when I was, uh, hungry and, and poor later in LA later. But, did, did, um, did you ever have any thought about, you know, cause you know, um, uh, oh, Bob Odenkirk wrote for Saturday Night Live and then he, he went mm-hmm. back to Second City and did a main stage. Was there ever a thought like, okay, Dana Carvey didn't work out. I'm going to call at that time Kelly Leonard, who was the producer, and say, hey, Kelly, how about putting me on one of the stages? 
You know what? That that thought probably should have occurred to me, and maybe in the back of my mind it did, but I, I kind of felt that that might be taking a step back, and I, I my my biggest regret is that I never did. I was never like a a member of a main stage company. I was able to perform on the main stage, understudying Adam McKay and almost everybody in Pinata Full of Bees, uh, and that was a thrill. And I guess part of me had said, like, well, I've had that experience. I didn't get a chance to build that show with everybody, but I've, I've had that experience of being on that stage and working with those people. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think I regret that I didn't do that because I think it probably would have been a smart move for me. As a matter of fact, um, when it looked like things were going to – or at least when we, when we knew our hiatus was coming up and we were going to be doing nothing for a little bit, uh, Steve Colbert asked me, he was like, so what do you think – uh, where are you headed next, baby? Chicago? And I said, no, St. Louis. And he had this shocked look on his face. Like he thought I was giving up and going back to St. Louis. I just meant that's where I'm going while I have some downtime because there was a lot of people back in St. Louis that wanted to see me and that I wanted to see. Um, yeah, I think I regret that. I was actually offered a, an opportunity to, when they were starting Second City Las Vegas, to go there um, and be, the, be in the first company there. And I, and I turned that down. Because at that point, I already moved from, from Chicago to New York and then New York to Los Angeles. And I was wondering, what can I do uh, in Las Vegas that I wasn't already doing in Los Angeles or could do? I could always, if I really wanted to put up a sketch review in Los Angeles, uh, I, and I think at that point I already was. I was working with the Dickie Bell Twist Dance Party, which was me, Eric Hoffman, Mike Monteristelli, and Scott Robinson. So I was already working on sketch. I was already doing something I love with people I loved in a town where I had some traction already and that Vegas might have been a step backwards for sure. Um, you still improvise and you teach. And, mm -hmm. and you, as you mentioned, you, you call your school the improv uh, trick. Now, mm -hmm. teaching in L.A., you make it very clear to your students when you start out, you say, mm -hmm. I am not going to make you a star. Why is that important to tell them? Because I think a lot of people take improv classes in Los Angeles because they think it's going to help their resume. And uh, honestly, I don't, I don't think having uh, improv trick on a resume is going to make somebody uh, uh, higher up on a producer's list because maybe not that – there are some producers who have even studied with me. But I, I really doubt that having improv trick on their resume is going to make them a star. I don't think working at any improv school is going to make anybody a star. <coughs> I think – I think the, the reason some schools have a uh, disproportionate number of people who go on to become successful is it's a good place to network for them. And so they, 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 you know, they start working with the right writers. They start working with people who later become a, a director or producer. Um, but I'm not offering that to people. As a matter of fact, the, the bulk of my students are people who are non-traditional improvisers. I, I, what I tend to do is, and it, and it may be to my, my disadvantage, is I turn non-improvisers into improvisers. And a lot of them, you know, they come see me perform at I.O. or elsewhere, and they wind up studying there once they've taken a few classes with me because they maybe think, oh, I'm going to be famous if I study there or, or whatever, or, you know, maybe because uh, I don't offer as many classes at as many times for people. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, just, I, I think it would be unethical to try to convince somebody that just because they're going to learn improv with somebody specific that they're going to become famous for it or they're going to become rich or they're going to become more castable. Maybe they will be become more castable, but 
Um, I don't, I don't think studying with one school over another is something that could promise that. The other thing you say is it's about the other person. How mm -hmm. is a player in practical terms? Can we make it about the other person? We hear that all the time in improv classes. How mm -hmm. do you, how do you teach that? Uh, how do I teach it? I do a lot of exercises that, that are dependent upon you can't move forward until you've noticed something new about the scene, about your scene partner, whether you, whether it's, you know, uh, how they've created their character. And with me, I root a lot of what I do in object work and space work. As a matter of fact, I spent the entire second class of my four week introductory class, just focusing on space work. I teach a four week class in space work and object work, because I think if you're noticing what they're doing, you're noticing the environment. If you're noticing the environment, you're noticing how it's having an effect on their character. And all we are as characters is products of our environment. Why do you teach, emphasize so much on space and object work? And it, to me, it's almost a, a lost, lost art in improv today. Mm -hmm. Why do you Definitely. think it's so important to, to continue to teach it? Yeah, well, for a bunch of different reasons, but for the primary reason is uh, for the... Um, the fact that when you engage the the right side of your brain, which is the visual side, the side that sees things, the side that makes connections, the side that sees what is there and isn't there, um, you also allow your the left brain, the, the part of your brain that that does syntax and logic and and puts speech together, to not have to be working. You, 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 it allows that to to kind of work in the same way that we allow our unconscious to start creating. So, and it also allows a lot of flow between the two, between the left and right brain. So if, you know, if there's, if there's any other reason than that, I think people should realize how much it affects their improv and how freeing it is. But also it's because if somebody has really taken the time to focus on, on their, on their space work, um, you see it on stage and you can see the gifts they're giving. You may not be able to track every gift. You know, if, if, you, if you're watching two people, let, let's give you an example you were talking about earlier. Uh, if we're performing at a, at a, at a school uh, that where the audience is almost all improvisers and you're performing on stage, um, uh, the average audience member coming in there may not notice some of the gifts that they're giving to one another. Because a lot of them were very, were very subtle with, you know, little things that were sliding to one another so that they can use it uh, later on down the line or, or hopefully immediately. Um, but space work, if they see somebody pick up a cup and give a cup to somebody else and there's that agreement, they grab that cup and it doesn't change sizes. And when they set it down, it stays at the same place in midair. It's an agreement that they can see. They can see that that agreement is being made. And sometimes seeing something is more important than saying it. Do you come from the philosophy? And I think I, this uh, was something that Colbert taught was – um, start with an activity. Come in with an activity to the scene. Yep. And why, what is that? So, so give me an example uh, of that and why that, you know, for people that aren't familiar with this, wh what that does. Um, well, it gives you something to do. It's, for one thing, it's, it makes it a lot less static. It's not just two talking heads. If you're really focused on seeing and not just like, you know, like some people will just like, oh, I'm going to pretend I'm smoking a cigarette. But you really have to see those ashes falling. You have to see what sort of ashtray they're going into. And that'll help you decide where you are. Because a lot of times you don't say, here we are in a hotel room. But if you're lighting this cigarette and then you reach over your head and pull a little chain on a lamp, maybe that tells us we're in some dingy little Motel 6. 
Or if you, you light a cigarette and the ashes fall outside of the ashtray and you just kind of like brush them off the table, you might be in a trashier place. And it's a way to tell your scene partner what you're seeing. One of the exercises that really, uh, that I've never done anywhere else or seen anywhere else, and I'm, I'm surprised I never used it uh, beyond a couple workshops in the past, was something that Michael Gelman did with us, which was have us, um, I don't think we were blindfolded, we were just trusted to close our eyes and the other person would take us on a walk through a part of the theater and, ex and just uh, describe everything, everything that they saw and passed and every flaw in everything that they saw. And, um, and then we would do it for one another and the other person would close their eyes and we'd take them through the same area. And sometimes we'd find things that the other person hadn't found. Sometimes we would describe things in a slightly different uh, detail. But I think it's a way to describe without describing to your scene partner what you're seeing. Or how you've engaged your right brain. Because when I studied, and I started in the 80s, it, it, it object work and, and space work was so important. Why, mm -hmm. do you think, why, why do you think there isn't an emphasis on it any, as much anymore? Uh, probably because there's been such an emphasis on game and finding the game of the scene. And you certainly can find the game in object work. Just, just picking up the same object that somebody used and placing it somewhere else is beginning a game. You can have all kinds of games going on, but because there's been an, uh, and I want to say this too, a lot of the, the improv that's grown out of some of the early work that we all did is that it's geared strictly towards writing sketch comedy in the moment. And when you're just focused more on writing sketch comedy in the moment than creating theater in the moment, um, you're, you're more focused on the words and how they're coming out and how this is a play on that and how this is upping the verbal game that's already in play. When you look back at the 90s when you were in Chicago and a lot of people that have been on, on the podcast really look at it as the, the, the golden age of improv. At least Absolutely. In Chicago. What, what, how do you look back at, at, at those years in, in Chicago? I look back at them as an incredibly magical time. I... And of course, I'm, I'll bet you that anybody at any point in their lives, when they come to a town that's so steeped in so many of the traditions that Chicago is, uh, has been steeped in, that it's going to be a magical experience for them. But at the time where, where we were doing all this, and, I, and, and actually, I, I wish I had, part of me wishes that I hadn't gone to college, although I, I, I wouldn't trade that, you know, the four years that I spent um, back in Missouri for anything. But uh, had I been there, I probably would have started out a little bit earlier. I probably would have been in, in classes with, you know, alongside you and Dave Keckner and some people that I, that I already came to Chicago looking up to. So um, uh, I, I think it was a magical time. There was already some, something brewing, something that was an underground that, you know, um, you know, I'm sure when the compass was starting and there was nothing else like it and there was this underground feeling to it, um, there was no it wasn't compromised in any way uh, that that was existing, too. And, and so I think we all had a chance to experience this thing that that hadn't ever happened before. Uh, and of, of course, there's still work like that going on, but uh, there that work, uh, you know, has been happening now for three decades now. As someone who, who improvises, who is like me, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. You just had a, you just had a, 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 a baby. I mm -hmm. just had a baby. How do you look, and you're in 
Los Angeles. You're in the industry town where you're auditioning and you get parts and TV and film and stuff like that. How is improv different now that you are a father? Um, it's a lot more emotional when I'm connecting with somebody a scene as a father. I really think about all the things that I think of as a father. You know, I, I relate to people. Um, uh, when I'm relating to a character who is a father, I may be a little more empathetic than the things that I would have said myself speaking to a father. Um, it's also interesting. I've been able to incorporate my daughter, Isabella, into some improv. She's, she's done two benefits for, um, for Planned Parenthood and, uh, and another show that Sam and I, my wife, the three of us did a show, uh, in the, um, the clubhouse here, um, on the, uh, um, the, 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 the tree house, I guess they call it, the clubhouse, the upper theater did a fun set there with her. And so I've been able to expose my daughter to improv. So even though she's, she doesn't understand what she's doing yet, uh, she certainly, when she hears applause on a TV, her head turns. Cause I think she thinks it's for her. <laughs> it is also, is it, because and you, you you said this very articulate earlier in the interview. It's like we're not going to get articulately articulately. Thank you. <laughs> that we're not going to get discovered uh, doing an improv show. You know, certainly at yeah. our age. You know, is there right. a little is is it more fun to do it now with less pressure on? Yeah, yeah. Because I can go out there, and I think there's there's other things about uh, you know. As we grow older, we're less worried about looking foolish where, you know, it's the more, more of the concern was how do I look cool when you step onto a stage in your twenties? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're, any of us are under any sort of, uh, idea that we're going to go up on stage and look cool anymore. And that the way to look cool would be to not care and to just be ourselves and, and do those things that we probably wouldn't have done on stage in our twenties. Yeah. Um, we've got to wrap this up. This has been great. And we always end the podcast Bill, with the same question, what one piece of advice would you give to an improviser starting out today? I would say study at as many places as you can and get as much stage time as you can. Bill Cott, thank you for being our guest on this episode of Improv Nerd. And there you have it, another great episode of Improv Nerd. I want to thank our guest, Bill Cott, and I loved it when he spoke so honestly uh, about uh, getting his big break and some regrets he had. So that's always really uh, helpful for me. Uh, if you want to check out Bill's teaching in Los Angeles, it's theimprovtrick.com. That's theimprovtrick.com. Uh, also, I want to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. If you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes, uh, intensives, and workshops called The Art of Slow Comedy, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, you can sign up for our Improv, new, improv Nerd. It's, it was hard to get out for some reason. Improv Nerd newsletter. Uh, each week, I send you a blog that can make you a better improviser or a better person or both. It's up to you. Uh, so check that out. We're also on social media, as you know. Follow us on Twitter, which is improv underscore nerd. Uh, Facebook, like our Facebook page because it really helps with my low self-esteem. And check out our YouTube channel. Also, we have a Patreon uh, a campaign that's been going on. So 
support that. That's Patreon slash Improv Nerd. Uh, and for $10, we release a uh, complete episode, a video episode of Improv Nerd. Also, a master class, like a seven or eight minute master class with some games that I teach in my Artist Low Comedy classes. So, um, we're also part of Feral Audio, as you know. What a great bunch of people, a podcast collective called feralaudio.com. Uh, check out all their great podcasts. And of course, I want to thank you. And until next time, remember walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine <laughs> as he approaches the red rope of the VIP pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film smooth skin <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line <laughs> ciao Bella it's me Scarface <laughs> oh my God. 